0: Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in!
1: Three sociologists, an anthropologist, and a political scientist walk into a bar, and the result is a new book on the state and emerging new forms of civic participation in contemporary America. While we seem to be living in an age marked by political apathy and growing distrust for government and political institutions, there also seems to be a growing set of opportunities for Americans to get involved and make a difference in society. From new forms of grassroots activism to the increasing importance that social media plays in organizing political movements, the ways Americans participate in social change have dramatically evolved, even while pessimism towards politics has reached new historical lows. To understand this contradiction, a group of ethnographers in their book, The Civic Imagination, provide a detailed account of how civically active Americans understand, talk, and act on their different visions for social change. Reporting on the ways that organizers envision their impacts on society, but also how they feel they've innovated new forms of participating, this book challenges assertions that we live in a political age driven by apathy. At the same time, this book reminds us that there are limitations, if not blinders, to these new forms of political involvement particularly around issues of inequality and other social problems. So before you download that new social justice mobile app or organize your next Occupy event at the public library, take a listen to our interview with the authors of The Civic Imagination, Making a Difference in American Political Life. Today on the podcast, we're lucky to have the authors of the new book, The Civic Imagination, Making a Difference in American Political Life, published by Paradigm Publishers. And on the line, we have Giampalo Bayaki, Elizabeth Bennett, Alyssa Cordner, Peter Taylor Klein, and Stephanie Saval. Thanks, guys, for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So, Jampalo Bayaki, you're Associate Professor at the NYU Gallatin School of Individualized Study, and I also see that you're my brother, so <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the podcast. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thanks for having me and I I know you had you had not a lot of choice.
1: <laughs> well, we don't like to practice nepotism too much on the podcast, but when we do, we like to flaunt it as much as we can. So <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell us what is what is the civic imagination about? What is the what is this new book about?
2: So this new book is an ethnography of the contemporary moment in American civic life. We did a study for about a year in the city of Providence, Rhode Island, which is a Middle sized and we think fairly typical U.S. city to try to make sense of what, what, I mean, how Americans were engaging in their politics. All the surveys tell us that Americans are skeptical uh, of political life, but at the same time, they continue to be engaged. So we, the book tries to make sense of that. We try to ask how people make sense of. The political system, how they engage, how they resolve this contradiction, and sort of what the what the contours of this conversation that's happening in civic life uh, are like. So this sounds like this was an ethnography across different field sites
1: of uh, political organizations or local civic organizations.
0: Absolutely. This is Alyssa. Uh, We conducted a multi-sided collaborative ethnography where all five of us worked in uh, seven different field sites in Providence. And we selected sites that uh, covered the range of civil society organizing in the city. We ended up working with three neighborhood associations, two more typical social justice organizations, and two groups that we called civic innovators. I think we'll talk a little bit about civic innovation later, uh, later with you. But we we divided our field work in an interesting way, where all of us uh, had access to all seven sites. So typically, a multi multi person ethnography will sort of divide and conquer, and we instead opted to all try to be comfortable at all seven sites to some degree so that we were able to have a, um, a very unique multi, um, multi-vision approach so that all of us uh, were looking at the same pieces of data.
1: When I think of ethnography, I usually think of it a kind of a sole person project, you know, a very mm-hmm. individualized thing. But here it's kind of a group project, an ambitious group project. How did, how did that idea come about?
3: Uh, well, this is Peter. Well, three of us, Alyssa... Alyssa and I uh, were teaching a class with Jean Paulo, uh, the ethnography qualitative methods class for the uh, first-year graduate students, and we were sitting around one of our discussions about how we would teach the next class, and we thought, well, we, if we're teaching this class and we're making all of the students do an ethnography in Providence, we should also have a project here. so. We brought up the idea in Jean, of doing something. We wanted a side project that was different than our, our what Alyssa and I were doing for our dissertations. And Jean-Paul said, oh, I've been mulling around this idea. There's some interesting things happening in Providence. Let's just do this side project. It, it'll be, you know, we could do research for a year and then we'll write a book. You know, it was sort of this oh flippant remark of... <laughs> Oh, and, and we got excited. Maybe you know this about him already. He, he's got a lot of a lot of ideas uh, that snowball, and soon, right away, there were five of us developing ideas, and uh, and that's how that's how it began.
1: Wow! So it sounds like it started almost like a, as a class project, and it kind of evolved over time to kind of include all these different sites. Is that right?
2: Well, we were we
3: were the ones teaching the class, and we were all the students were coming up with these great ideas and these really interesting things that were happening in Providence so as the instructors of the class we were getting excited about doing ethnography uh, in the city so yeah it sort of started with the idea of yeah it's a class project but we we knew it would last uh, it would go well beyond the one semester class we were teaching uh, from the beginning and then yeah it quickly snowballed into five of us all working on a on a single project
1: well, that's really cool. I mean, that's uh, that's very different. I, we hear about class projects all the time, but rarely class projects that lead to something like a product that you guys have. I mean, was that difficult to make something from the classroom to become something that eventually becomes a book?
0: I, I would say that the difficulties were not in extending the project beyond the classroom. I think that that happened quite naturally for us. I think that we certainly encountered other difficulties related to the writing process. Uh, one thing that we we talked about repeatedly over the course of the research was how this project became something that was bigger than any of us, how the ideas that developed were, were more interesting and more thoughtful and more nuanced than any of us could have developed on our own. And I think part of that comes from the fact that we're a very interdisciplinary team. We have three sociologists, a political scientist, and an anthropologist. So we have different perspectives on the same issue. Um, all three of these disciplines talk about Civil society and civic engagement in many different ways, and so it was very useful to have these different perspectives, and that was both a strong benefit to our project and a source of um, of occasional tension or uh, or the need for extra extra thought and <laughs> deliberation, especially as we were setting up our projects and conducting um, conducting early research, and then th- thinking about how we would do the analysis.
1: Yeah, yeah, I could see that you guys probably approached the data or things in the data resonated differently for each of you guys, given the different disciplinary perspectives on it. When I think about civic life, I feel like I hear a discussion about always how there's a lot of apathy amongst young people. I mean, you mentioned earlier about how, you know, as college kids, sometimes there's this excitement about changing the world. I mean, does your project kind of look at the state of civic life in America today. This
4: is Elizabeth. So one of the things that we noticed and thought was really interesting was that the national trends about um, who is participating in civic life um, and the degree to which they are participating was different than um, it was a couple decades ago. So people are voting, registering to vote, um, joining neighborhood associations at pretty high levels right now. Um, But at the same time, they're really apathetic in um, when they talk about politics and they say they don't trust the government, that the system is broken, politicians are corrupt. So we found ourselves puzzling about this kind of paradox. People hate politics, but they love doing politics. And Mm -hmm. this is new for America.
1: So would you say that it's not so much that civic engagement is less or more, but it's just changed in this new context?
5: yeah this is stephanie i I think it has changed in some some significant ways, and one of the things that we talk about um, in the book is a trend towards uh, civic innovation, what we call civic innovation so this is a related trend to things like social entrepreneurship and social enterprise and internet activism um, things that many listeners would probably be familiar with as trends in the United States today um Particularly in the civic sphere, though, so we're talking about um, people who are using kind of new ideas and innovations to, to bolster participation and drive citizen engagement and get people closer to government. You know, a popular idea that one of our field sites used was a see it, click it, fix it. Right. So a citizen would take could take a picture of a pothole, for example, and send it in online. And and kind of that would be a way of generating awareness um, that 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 was a problem that needed to be solved by by the government. So we kind of looked at this trend and we both tried to define it and kind of ask, okay, so what? Is this a good thing or a bad thing for democracy and for participation in general? And the way we defined it was to say that these are people who are, they're, they're prioritizing uh, new ideas. So that's the biggest thing, is that if you can come up with a new idea for solving um, a civic-related issue, like citizens are too far removed from city government, or city government politicians are, um, you know, the, the politics in the in the legislative chamber are so acrimonious that it's just not even funny. You know, people look at those kinds of issues and they say, okay, well, um, what are some new ideas to try and fix that? There's also a kind of sense of, um, the importance of self-sufficiency. So that the need for people to not rely on government, that citizens can solve their own problems and government, uh, sometimes just gets in the way. Hmm there's this idea that transparency is really important, and that is really important because a lot of things about government are kept secret. And so if you can bring things out into the light, people understand, are more informed, and basically can make better decisions and get involved in uh, more productive ways. And then there is this focus on New technology using smartphone apps and social media, using these things to provide information and uh, facilitate communication. And then they, these people often see themselves as a kind of disruptive technology, as one of our uh, research participants. Called himself, he he wants to change the way citizens relate to government. So he sees himself kind of like the iPhone of the <laughs> of the world of the civic sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, there's uh, civic innovators really prioritize polite engagement over conflict. Hmm. Uh, so they say that politics uh, is that the the conflict that characterizes politics often is very uncivil and unproductive, and so it's much better to have rational, reasoned and polite debate and that that's a that's a much more productive way of doing politics. So that's a kind of summary of the trend that we um, as we describe it. Um, and then, so is this a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, I was well, about
1: to ask that is, are, yeah. <laughs> is as good or is there right.
5: uh, the good thing is that this is really appealing. And we as you know, professors in college can definitely see this students are, get excited about these ideas. It's their hip. They're, they're drawing audiences both in person and online. And that's a promising trend in an age where, as Elizabeth was saying, um, people can be apathetic. Um, that's exciting. However, there's some pretty big blind spots that we note. And it's is just a sense of the, that what civic innovation does is really prioritize process over outcome. This idea of promoting new technologies and promoting transparency and self-sufficiency and new ideas. It kind of doesn't matter so much what the new idea is or what the outcome is, um, so much as getting numbers of people engaged.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's all about the way you're characterizing, it's about the new. And uh, it's something exciting and innovative and um, it might not necessarily substantively solve the problem. Um, yeah. But it's, yeah. it, because it's new, it's almost more of a branding thing than, uh, than actually getting things done.
5: But, yeah, or getting meaningful things done, I think,
1: yeah. But isn't civic engagement, isn't, isn't having a process in place just as important as outcomes to a certain extent? I mean, it seems like just the fact that people are getting engaged is a, is a good thing regardless of, of necessarily if it solves problems like poverty or inequality, right?
5: And that's not a bad thing in and of itself, but the problem is that that overlooks, um, the fact that a good process does not necessarily mean good outcomes for everyone. And so it kind of overlooks the problem that, uh, not everyone is, is involved. It, it doesn't, you know, civic innovation doesn't really concern itself with the kinds of people that get involved nor how many people get involved. And so it has a very limited, limited range. And one of the great examples, I think, of this is uh, there's a participatory budgeting process that um, where citizens can kind of get involved in determining how city budgets get used. And what happens is, um, you know, we saw some of our civic innovators in Providence get really excited about this idea of participatory budgeting. And they were really excited. But the problem is, you know, and, and one of the things that Paulo has actually seen in different research um, is that, you know, you get a bunch of white middle class people going to a meeting to determine how municipal funding is getting spent. And they're going to build things, you know, they're going to prioritize funding for things like dog parks and beach showers and things like that over, let's say, giving better school bus access to low income neighborhoods. So that's a, that's a good example of how a civic innovation focus on process over outcome can really Overlook um, the fact that it, it's about kind of an elite issue, and to begin with, if that makes sense.
3: And yeah, and one of the problems that seems to come <laughs> up, as as you were in your question, sort of if these new ideas were addressing issues like poverty and inequality, right? Process is really important in how they in how people come to solve these issues. But one of the things we found is that in these new types of engagement and with the focus on process. Is that the problem? Was exactly that was that they weren't addressing inequality, or inequality sort of became a blind spot, or it became a, tra- a trade-off. Like, oh, we're 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 focused on, you know, solving some issues, and inequality we found often sort of faded from from view from the focus of what was important in a city that was is extremely unequal with really high unemployment, for example, and a real problem with poverty and gangs and, and violence and other issues. So with the new forms, is that some of the, the, the hardest issues to deal with, we found, were the ones being easiest, being overlooked um, first in, in these processes.
0: Absolutely. This is Alyssa. And I think one thing that we saw with the civic innovation groups in particular was that through their focus on... Technology as a source of good ideas, there wasn't always a recognition that technology does not allow for the participation of all populations equally, Hmm. or that these ideas are not as appealing to all groups of people. And so, if if the process that groups undertake excludes certain populations within the city or certain certain groups of people from participating in the first place, the solutions that are developed through those processes are not likely to reflect the needs or interests of the groups who aren't at the table to begin with.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I imagine the internet has this kind of democratizing feel to it, but I guess not everybody has access to that technology or ability to use that technology the same way. So I'm sure it silences some voices while amplifying others. So when I teach uh, undergraduates, I feel like a lot of them uh, will tell me that they want to be a social entrepreneur or they're excited about uh, some new campaign that they want to get involved in. There seems to be a lot of optimism. So what's the kind of take-home message that this book is offering about that issue?
4: This is Elizabeth. So one of the things we do in the book is to describe how people imagine their connection to the broader society in such very diverse ways um, that two activists who might even have similar goals or upbringings might see themselves working for change in different ways and how it might not be good or bad, but just different. Um, So we hope that the stories in the book appeal to students who are looking to make change in really different ways. But we also point out that each of these mindsets that we uncovered as being kind of common, that innovative entrepreneurial one being one of them, have some blind spots, some natural things that it's really easy to overlook if you see the world in that way. So we've already talked about how innovators might not see how they're overlooking um, the digital divide. And at the same time, people who are using really contentious um kind of hard-nosed tactics might not realize how much they can alienate people who are afraid of conflict or see consensus as being a much better route. Um, So we tried to highlight a few of those things that would help any type of activist be a little bit more thoughtful about who they might be able to build coalitions and alliances with.
1: Kind of following on that, do you think this book could be, like you mentioned, could be used in a classroom? What kind of class do you think it'd be well-suited for?
2: Uh, This is Jean-Paul here. I think we We made a lot of choices in the writing of the book, as we've discussed earlier. We tried to make it an accessible book, uh, but we tried to have at the same time a sort of solid social science backing to it with uh, strong theory arguments. I think so I think the book would be useful for civic engagement courses, uh, social change courses, courses that are sending students out in the community. But we also meant the book to be useful for uh, problems in American society, uh, introduction to social problems, introduction to politics kinds of courses.
0: And I think because of our unique methodological approach, this course would be a great uh, jumping off point for broad conversations about urban sociology or other graduate level research methods courses.
1: Oh, that sounds great. So listeners should go and pick up a copy of the civic imagination at your local bookstore uh with that being said uh thanks guys for joining us in the podcast Thank thank you thank you yeah best To this podcast or to learn more about the research discussed today, check out our website at thesocietypages.org office hours. As always, thanks to my office hours co hosts, the entire TSP team at Minnesota, and the U of M's College of Liberal Arts.